0: Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the Backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. Chapter 8, Acts of the Spotlight, Part 3. We're going through the Book of Acts in the New Testament, looking at what you might call the backstory of church history. The story that explains how this religion got to be what it is. Where does church history begin? It starts with the first Christian church. How can this first church be identified? It's the place where Christianity was first preached. What is Christianity? A question we need to ask if we're going to identify this teaching. In chapter one of this podcast, I posed this question, and in chapter four, I gave what I believe is the kernel, the shortest and most succinct answer to the question. Christianity is Christianity. It is the belief that in the Christ concept, the person and mission of Jesus have been accurately described. So it's belief in Jesus the Christ in accordance with church doctrine. In chapter 4 we looked into this concept. It is the defining principle of Christianity, the means by which a person is justified before God through Jesus. Anything contrary to this is not Christian. If you were to go up to a Christian and say, Hi, I believe that you inherit eternal life by loving God and your neighbour and doing good. I'm a Christian. Their first thought would be, no, you're not. How you get to heaven is a very tightly held and consistent concept in Christianity. The same throughout all mainstream denominations as far as I know. If you believe the right thing about this, you're in. If you believe the wrong thing about this, you're going to hell. Sounds funny, doesn't it? But that is the belief. You have to believe the right thing about this. You have to believe in the right concept. In looking at the opening of this episode, I thought I might see how consistent this was. And I went online to see if there was a Christian convention or something I could go to to ask some people about this. There were no conventions coming up anywhere nearby. And if there were, they were probably cancelled because of COVID. But I did find an event called Justification, Big Ideas Night, run by a local church. What a timely event, dealing with that defining principle of Christianity that we're looking at. So I registered and went along and asked if I could record the session and ask a question during the proceedings. But it turned out it was more of an in-house sort of event, just the one church teaching their mostly young people, rather than something of variety of people might have gone along to for an open look at the idea of justification. I think the slogan, Big Ideas Night, gave me the wrong impression. So I felt a bit much like an intruder, with my big spanner to throw in the works. I had the impression the question I had planned might not go down so well. There are times when I get a kick out of being a heretic. Other times when I just don't feel like it. And the speaker wasn't all that keen either, so we were agreed on that. No awkward dissension tonight. But he said he'd be happy to answer questions in a personal interview, and he'd call me about it, which he did a couple of days later. I told him a bit more about what I was doing, and he said he knew Tim the reverend of the Presbyterian Church I interviewed in Chapter 2. He said he'd give Tim a call about it and talk to the people in his church and get back to me. But then when he did call back, the answer was no, which was a bit disappointing. It would have been interesting. But there was mostly just one thing I wanted to draw from what he taught on the night. The audio of the message was posted on a Facebook page. So I listened and went through all the stuff that was on subject and going through the points of what to believe about justification. First the setup. God is holy, we are sinners and we stand condemned. God is holy, we are sinners sets up the problem involving original sin, which I won't go into now, and the verdict is we stand condemned unless and then the information about how God has provided for justification after he laboured over the point in no uncertain terms that doing good things, living with love for others or whatever, makes no difference to how lost in sin and condemned by God we are. So after reinforcing these points, he moved into how justification before God works. And as he went, he referenced passages from the Bible in the usual fashion to show that what he was teaching was biblical. And here's how that went. Romans 8.33 Romans 8.33 Romans three, two Corinthians, Isaiah fifty three, a general reference to Leviticus and animal sacrifice, Romans eight one, Ephesians four, Philippians two, Romans three twenty four, Romans four, Romans five nineteen, Genesis fifteen, quoted in Romans four, one Corinthians one thirty, Philippians three, Ephesians one and two, Matthew seventeen twenty, Ephesians one eleven, Romans three five. Galatians, and James 2. Going through these references again, and where is the teaching coming from? Paul, 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 Isaiah, general reference to Leviticus and animal sacrifice, Paul, 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 Genesis, Paul, 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 Matthew, Paul, 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 James. There's not much that hasn't come from Paul here. So looking at the passages that are not those of Paul, I must say that Isaiah chapter 53 does line up very well with what Paul teaches, even though I don't believe it's talking about the Messiah. Now let's look at something interesting here. One of this teacher's references was from Romans 4, where Paul quotes from Genesis 15, and another one was where he ended off with James 2 which is where James also quotes from Genesis 15, from the same passage in Genesis chapter 15. Interesting that this teacher would choose these two passages to back up his theory on justification. Here are those words of Paul and James, side by side. Paul, Romans 4, 5 quote, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then James. Chapter Two, twenty to 24 quote, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. Two sides to a coin? Or Jerusalem refuting Antioch? That last statement of James, You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone, is an absolute counterposition to a point made by a justification night Christian speaker, that he reinforced time and again. It goes against a major principle, the holding of which defines the Christian. It's a principle that is consistently made unequivocally in these Christian messages, that it's all about Paul's faith precept. Which means, in regards to ancestry, the DNA of the Christian is in the congregation at Antioch, and it is not in Jerusalem. Of course you can find a way around this and combine Paul's faith alone message with what James is saying and say that this combination existed in the mind of James. I believe this is the Catholic position that good works are also essential, although secondary. But James doesn't sound like he's assimilated Paul's gospel into his belief system. Now looking at the Matthew reference that was included. A bit of teaching from Jesus squeezed into the main part of the message on justification. Who'd have thought? Right, so, I'm pretty sure that all those passages from Paul were where he was on subject and really teaching about justification. Then, in the middle of his talk on justification, this Christian teacher introduced a single verse from the book of Matthew, saying Jesus, quote, "...talks about mustard seed faith as effective," unquote. Mustard seed faith effective for what? In that passage, Jesus is talking about faith to move mountains and to heal people, Matthew 17:20. I suppose it sort of fits in a way, but I don't think Jesus was talking about justification. Why is this all we get from Jesus, and why is he not on subject? Just a wild guess, but I think it's because Jesus doesn't teach this Christian concept of justification in the Gospels. Is there anywhere in the gospels where Jesus is on subject in regards to justification? The answer is yes, there is. And I have read these out before. Reading from Luke 10:25 to 37. Someone says to Jesus, quote, "Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" "What is written in the law," he replied, "How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a story about a man helping someone in need. And he says, Go and do likewise. Matthew 25 from verse 31. Jesus tells a story about the Day of Judgment. People are welcomed into God's kingdom on the basis of what they've done for those in need. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So if the interview had have gone ahead, the question I was going to ask was, As Christians, do you believe that being a part of the Kingdom of God is about loving God and loving your neighbour, and that this is very much about what you do, as in, people are distinguished in this regard by what they do? Pretty sure the direct answer would have been no. And the indirect and more likely answer, going on experience, would have been a sort of long yes-no sort of no. The second question I was going to ask was, Do you think it's fair to say that Jesus is saying here, when it comes to being a part of God's kingdom, people are distinguished by what they do? I wonder what he would have said. And I wonder if it might be connected to the fact that he didn't choose to refer to any of these passages in his talk about justification. In wrapping up, one of the last things he said was, It's from the Bible. It's what we believe. It's how we are saved there is no cover up unquote. I had a look at their church website and on the front page it says in big bold letters all about Jesus which is fair enough what is teaching is about Jesus but Jesus teaching is not the first port of call when a christian is looking at what to believe if you believe the things Jesus said about inheriting eternal life about who gets welcomed into the kingdom of god It actually means you are not a Christian. If a respected Christian teacher, pastor, reverend, priest, one day just got up in church and said they believed what Jesus said in answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, there would be stunned silence. People would want to know if their preacher actually now believes this. And if this were to be confirmed, there would be a process that would take place, leading to that preacher being removed from office. The idea of Jesus' sacrifice for sins is quite unnecessary, if what he himself said is true. What is a Christian? The best way to get a straight answer from a Christian on this is indirectly. They'll say they believe in Jesus or they're followers of Jesus, but Christians identify each other by what they have in common as Paul believers. A Christian is a Paul believer, which is quite fitting. Christ is a term that refers to Paul's concept of Jesus. This is what a Christian believes. The belief is that he was right about everything, so belief in Paul's Christ concept is synonymous with belief in Jesus. This is Christianity. This is the teaching we're looking for, to identify the first Christian church. Okay, back to New Testament times. Christianity puts Paul in the box seat, and so does the New Testament. But this doesn't necessarily mean that in Paul's time, Gentile belief in Jesus was all centred on Paul's teaching. Paul's words in Galatians do indicate that people were also being swayed by another competing teaching, that of Jews who believed in Jesus and upheld the Jewish law. It seems there was a period of contention before Paul eventually came out on top, particularly once the church picked up his letters and installed them as the centrepiece of Christian thought. But this happened later. What about the second half of the first century and into the second? How popular was Paul's teaching during that period? There's a very early church father whose prominence suggests very strongly that it didn't take long for paul's teaching to become the standard of orthodoxy this is interesting the church fathers were church fathers because they were recognized as the teachers of orthodox or correct christianity they rose to prominence for this reason and their writings were preserved by the church for this reason at the expense of many writings that were not preserved the earliest church father with a substantial corpus of surviving written documents is ignatius bishop of Antioch. His letters were written early in the 2nd century, close to the time of his death, but his life takes us well into the 1st century, and he was very much a follower of Paul in his thinking. Ignatius is one of the few figures referred to by the Church as an Apostolic Father, men who are supposed to have known an original Apostle. There's only a few of them, identified by the limited amount of documents that have survived from this period. They actually seem to have been identified by the fact that they wrote something that was considered orthodox, and therefore has survived. The idea that they were associated with anyone who knew Jesus is assumed. There are about five of these apostolic fathers, one of them being Barnabas. Surprise, surprise! The Epistle of Barnabas is one of a fairly small number of extra-biblical Christian documents brought to us by early Christianity. It is unsigned, but ascribed to Barnabas by Clement of Alexandria and Oregon, two second 2nd to 3rd century church fathers. It actually made it into one of the earliest complete copies of the New Testament that survives to this day, Codex Sinaiticus of the 4th century. If what Acts tells us about Barnabas is true, and he came out of Jerusalem, what if he had have stayed there? What if he had remained with those people who had known Jesus and continued as a proponent of their message and not linked up with Paul in Antioch and become a part of things there? Would he be a church father? Would his status as a church father be substantiated by a letter in his name? Or would he have faded into unrepresented obscurity like Peter and the others because he didn't have a good reputation in Antioch? Antioch is extremely well represented in the New Testament, and outside of it. We've got all the genuine letters of Paul, the earliest and best attested Christian documents by far, and then Acts, which starts in Jerusalem but then takes us by the hand and introduces us to Paul, gives us a story about how he's the chosen one, and then drags us along on the Paul campaign while whispering in our ear about all those bad Jews and how wonderful the Gentiles are, Then outside the New Testament, we have those letters of Ignatius, a man who materializes as a real character in history due to these and other surviving documents. And we've got the Epistle of Barnabas. But what about Jerusalem? How well represented is this community that was headed by the disciples of Jesus and his brother James? Well, pushed to the back of the New Testament, we have some letters with the names James, Peter, John and Jude. Let's have a look at these letters of Peter. Um, we're still on an extended tangent here. I'll be getting back to the survey of Acts in due course. The author of 1 and 2 Peter claims to be Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, and this is attested to by 2nd to 3rd century church fathers. But the majority of scholars are not convinced that these documents were written by 1st century Galilean fishermen. There's the cultured style of Greek, and how the author quotes from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, that a Jew in his home country is unlikely to have used. There are scholars who see one and two Peter as documents written by two different authors, and two Peter copies a lot from Jude, which raises questions, that sort of thing. All of these things can be answered to support belief in Peter as the author, if you want them to be. Like the cultured Greek is not surprising, If Peter was writing to Greek speakers, it makes sense that he would have enlisted the help of someone who could write well in Greek. Especially if, as a Galilean fisherman, he couldn't write in the first place. And as an eloquent Greek speaker, this writer might have been from a region where the Septuagint was used. And I believe writing was a slow process in those days. Peter might not have been there for the whole time dictating word for word. Without accessible recording methods, people relied on memory a lot more in those days and they would have been skilled at it through practice. This writer could have been sitting alone for a lot of the process, writing away, maybe working from a type of shorthand record of his time with Peter, and then when he gets to the scripture quotations, he works off memory, that might be the Septuagint, or he goes to the synagogue and unrolls scrolls to make sure he gets it accurately. Okay, that would be the more authentic Hebrew version, if he's in Judea. Anyway, if you want Peter to be the author, you can work around these things. The copying from Jude is a tricky one, and the composition date range that scholars generally give it. If the consensus is in the ballpark, Peter would have been either a very old man when he authored it, or he was sent back after he died because he forgot to write this letter which is addressed to the Christian Churches of Asia Minor. For confirmation that one of the men who actually followed Jesus wrote a document, the first question to ask is, Is this writer Jewish? We know this writer who calls himself Peter is a Christian from what he's written. This applies to both letters. I'm lumping them together here. He even refers to Paul's writings as scripture. But what does that tell us? It doesn't tell us that he was a member of the Jerusalem community. It doesn't even tell us that he liked them. We've seen in many places in the New Testament where Christian contributors identify themselves as non-Jews by their anti-Semitism. Christian generally seems to mean Gentile. So I just read through 1 and 2 Peter again for the first time in years. There is some beautiful teaching in there, and I didn't see any anti-Semitism. Yes, I was looking for it, and I wanted to see it. I also think I had reason to expect it. But is this teaching Peter the disciple of Jesus? If he's presented as a Christian who refers to Paul's letters as scripture, does this mean it's likely to be the real Peter? At this stage that's a matter of opinion depending on each of our presuppositions. But it is fair to say that the real Peter may not have been a Christian, but he definitely was a Jew. We're looking for a Jew. A Jew whose belief is also in keeping with what Jesus taught. And a good example of this is James. The letter of James definitely appears to give us something from a Jewish follower of Jesus. James is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's addressed to Jews, and another piece of evidence here for clear cultural distinction has been swept under the carpet. At the start of chapter 2 of his letter, James says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. The word translated meeting here is in fact the Greek word synagogue, the very same word used in Acts 18.19 for example where Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. In all his references to Gentile churches, Paul uses the word ecclesia, a Greek word for a Greek assembly, translated church. And not once does he use the word synagogue for them. But here James says synagogue when he's referring to the meeting places of his brothers, so it's translated meeting in the NIV. It seems the translators didn't like the word synagogue and its implications. I had a look at quite a few other versions of the New Testament, and a few have correctly translated this word as synagogue, including Young's Literal Translation, the Tree of Life Version, the Orthodox Jewish Bible, not sure how you can have an Orthodox Jewish New Testament, but anyway, and the World English Bible. Otherwise, all the rest, and there's quite a few of them, have your company, church meeting, gathering, assembly, worship meeting. Church. This is deceptive. It is intentional, incorrect translation. But it's also helpful. It shows that the correct translation is a problem for people. The problem of James's letter being addressed to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations is dealt with by the idea that the Christian church is the new Israel. But synagogues, James the brother of Jesus writing to his people scattered among the nations, If he's writing to Christians scattered among the nations, why does he assume they're in synagogues? Christians are in churches. This is a fair distinction to make that does apply to the time of this letter. These two words, synagogue and church, clearly distinguish between people. Jews met in synagogues. Christians met in churches. Ecclesia. Even before the word Ecclesia came to mean a Christian assembly, It was a word for a Greek assembly. Then at James 5, verse 14, we have the word Ecclesia. Call the elders of the church to pray over them, James says. I don't believe the words synagogue and church would have been interchangeable in the mind of James or any Jew. If James was accommodating both in his letter, he would have used a general term both times. Which one of these terms is more likely to have been edited? Well, our modern translators have answered that question for us. Early Christian editors didn't clean up that first reference, so modern translators have had to pick up the slack. James is writing to all those he regards as the true Israel, and he makes no reference to the churches of the Gentiles. The book of James is clearly addressed to Jews who are followers of Jesus, people who go to synagogues, as they did before Paul's conversion. Acts 26 9, Paul speaking, quote, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. Unquote. It doesn't sound like there was such a thing as the Jerusalem church. And one synagogue to another suggests that this movement was widespread and accepted within Jewish practice in Jerusalem. So we're getting a picture of the cultural difference between Jerusalem and Antioch. We've seen how writers of the New Testament documents identify themselves as belonging to one or the other group by their choice of words. And we've also seen how Gentile writers have let us know what they think of Jews in general, which gives us an idea of what the relationship was like between them. The relationship between Jerusalem and Antioch, between Jesus' disciples and Paul, Christianity needs this to be very solid. The writer of Acts tells us it was pretty good, a few handshakes and well-wishes, but the attitude of the writer towards Jews betrays something different. If the Jerusalem community, where the disciples of Jesus were teaching and leading, was different to the church in Antioch in regards to what people were being taught, you would expect there to be relational differences as well. And you would expect Paul might have to have been defending his position against Jewish people coming in from Jerusalem, with a greater claim as envoys of the Jesus movement. We'll see in Paul's letters that this is precisely what happened at times. Even people sent by James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem community, Paul denounces them, depicting them as people who had a bad influence on Peter. This is when Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, tells us Peter came to Antioch, the one time where we see a disciple of Jesus going out to a community of people who have a belief in Jesus. And it's all about a conflict between them that has Paul putting Peter in his place. Chapter 2 from verse 11. Of course, we get Paul's side of the story in his letter. That's what ends up getting published in the New Testament, because early Christians held on to his letters as their sacred text. And this means, of course, to Christians, that Paul was right and Peter was wrong. Peter was too influenced by overly law-observant Jews. The idea that Peter might have told the story differently without the negative slant on the law is not recognised. There are always two sides to an argument, But here, Paul is the one who says what's what, not Peter. Peter is wrong. What if Peter had written and said Paul was wrong? He may well have, but it didn't make it into the New Testament. Although this did happen between Paul and James, they both wrote about exactly the same issue, using the same quote from Genesis, and they were each taking opposing sides to the same argument. Paul and his Gentile mission, it's all in your head. James and the Jerusalem community, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Although, the bit about offering your son to God as a sacrifice does seem like a strange act of obedience to a God who has said, Thou shalt not kill. But what we're interested in here, in this inquiry, is simply differences in belief. James 1:25 "Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it they will be blessed in what they do." Unquote. Paul on the other hand talks about the law as a curse in Galatians chapter 3 and elsewhere. This teaching is entrenched in Christianity. Works is a term used like a dirty word Its negative application being that people who believe you are supposed to do things if you love God are trying to work their way to heaven by their own merit, which I don't believe is the Jewish idea. The Christian idea of the Jewish law is that it's a legalistic burden that no one can live up to because no one can be perfect. To the Jews, I believe the law is not a curse or a burden. This ideological conflict between Jews and Christians is seen in the New Testament not just between Jews and Christians in general, but between the disciples of Jesus and Paul. James 2.8, quote, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right, unquote. This is the sort of thing we're looking for to identify a Jewish author, even though scholars also question the authorship of James, citing the cultured Greek as a red flag, like they do with Peter. Some say a primitive version of the letter was composed by James and then later polished by another writer. A very likely scenario for a lot of these documents. But the arguments against James, I thought, were not so substantial, and it is given quite an early date range for composition. It seems James would not need to have been such an old man to have written it. So I think James, the brother of Jesus, might just have written James. It's addressed to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, people in synagogues, he doesn't agree with Paul, I like that bit, and he talks about actually living by the teaching of Jesus, this being about what you do and not just what you think. These are all things that would naturally flow from the position of a Jew who believed in the values taught by Jesus. On the other hand, one Peter starts with, quote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, etc., etc., Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were all regions in modern-day Turkey, and so was Tarsus, where Paul came from, according to Acts. And Antioch although in the first century Antioch was on the Syrian side of the border. This is not necessarily a problem. There might also have been a letter from this Peter to God's elect scattered throughout Judea, Samaria and Galilee that was sadly lost. But the evidence is stacking up for a divide between Jerusalem and Antioch, a situation where Christian documents belonged to Paul's side of this divide, Christian documents and Christianized documents preserved by the church. We're going to see less evidence for the idea that the real Peter was arm-in-arm with Paul, all for what he was teaching in Antioch, giving him the right hand of fellowship, and the idea that he might have referred to the disciples Paul was winning around the empire as God's elect. So obviously rejecting the authenticity of 1 and 2 Peter and accepting the authenticity of James works for my thesis. 1 and 2 Peter have Peter as a good Christian, affirming Paul's writings as scripture, as if he sees them as having the same status as Jewish scriptures, like he would put them alongside the scrolls at the synagogue and read from them on the Sabbath if he could get away with it. And James disagrees with Paul and calls him a foolish man. Of course, a Christian apologist will reject the idea that they were in disagreement and harmonise the teaching of James and Paul as two sides to a coin, by necessity. So, there's no doubt that James was written by the right sort of person, to the people the brother of Jesus would most likely have written to. And it looks like 1 and 2 Peter were letters written by a Gentile Christian to Gentile Christians. Okay, something I'd like to say before closing. The start of this episode was a diversion on top of a diversion. I hope it's not too disjointed. And I know I continue to illustrate my point about Paul. You might be saying, okay, we get it, you don't like Paul. But I'm illustrating just how big this deviation is in the Christian story and in the Christian belief system. It is enormous. I believe that at the Big Ideas Justification Night this teacher was teaching what he sincerely believes to be true and when he said there's no cover-up it was because he honestly believes this. But is he right? Just because what he's teaching is Christianity. I've got a question for those people who are interested in this podcast. I imagine there are probably a lot of Christians among my listeners out there. Maybe most people who listen to this are Christians who probably strongly disagree with me. But I've got a question for you, Christian or not. So far there's been no response to my challenges to Christian teachers, but this is an easy question to answer. Do you think the young people at the church where the Big Ideas Night about Justification was held, do you think that they should be made aware of this podcast and what I've said about the teaching on that night? Send in a voice message if you have an opinion. Go to anchor.fm forward slash shakingchristianity and click on the message button. Let me know what you think. A few words is all it takes. That's the end of Acts of the Spotlight, part three. Thanks again for listening. Part four coming up.